Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone, has, if, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, good morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. It's great to see you. If you are to follow along of the talk, then it's on the service sheet as you were given on the back. Uh, Simon has prayed, so we'll get started. I don't know if you've ever seen the Antiques Roadshow. It's a BBC classic, isn't it? If you haven't seen it, this is basically what happens. A member of the public uh, brings something they own to show an antiques expert. Um, maybe uh, a tea set they bought at a car boot or a, a painting that has been handing down through the family. And there's this five-minute consultation going on, typically in a, a National Trust property, And the audience are gathered round. The expert examines the item, looking for damages, thinking about the backstory behind it, where it's come from. And it's all very nice. It's all very quaint. Um, Everyone's crowding around. The owner's nodding along. Everyone's nodding along. But really, they're waiting for one question. They've got one question in our minds as you watch along. How much is it worth? How much is it worth? We're waiting for that moment when the expert says it's worth an absolute fortune and the owner just quietly tries to hide how excited they are inside. Or, actually, it's worth just a few pounds and the owner just tries to hide how disappointed they are. How much is it worth? Well, we're in the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians and the question today is how much is Jesus worth? What is the value of personally knowing Jesus? Is knowing Jesus worth more than our achievements, our privileges, success, status, stuff? Is knowing Jesus worth more than our reputation amongst our friends, family and colleagues? Now, the Apostle Paul wants us to see from these verses that knowing Jesus is more valuable than anything else in the whole world 
world. Just scan down to verse 8. I count everything as lost, says Paul, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Remember, this is a church that is going well, but they're up against it. Uh, Paul is writing from prison. He's not sure whether he's going to die or make it out. Uh, Nero is going to be emperor in three years' time. He's going to set fire to Christians for fun. Yet chapter 1 talks of the privilege of being a Christian. Uh, Not just in belief, but in suffering. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 27 and 29 are key verses we keep coming back to. If you look uh, with me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whenever I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. As we've seen throughout this letter, Paul uh, wants these Christians to strive side by side with a suffering for the gospel mindset. He holds up uh, the mindset of Jesus in chapter 2 of suffering for the eternal well-being of others. And the role models of Timothy who served sacrificially and Epaphroditus who suffered and nearly died for the sake of Christ. And yet Paul knows this isn't easy and will be tempted away from this way of living. And so if chapter 2 is about walking the way of the cross, uh, the cross and suffering, well chapter 3 is about avoiding the way of the cross and suffering. In the midst of temptation to duck out of suffering for Jesus, Paul wants us uh, to be crystal clear that knowing Jesus is worth more than anything this world can offer even worth the suffering that comes attached. And to convince these Christians of that, Paul reminds them of two key truths. Religious pedigree and performance are worth nothing. That's the first thing. Religious pedigree and performance are worth nothing. Paul states the presenting issue in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In Paul's sights are those who are called uh, Judaizers. They're professing Christian believers, uh, but who insist that Christians follow Jewish customs and practices, uh, particularly here, circumcision. And Paul deals with them in the strongest terms, doesn't he? Uh, When we read the word dogs, we're not to think cute puppies, but impure, wild animals roaming through the streets for scraps. So think urban fox or dingoes in the Australian outback. And ultimately, they're not just merely misguided people, but evildoers. How so? Because they put confidence in the flesh and teach others to do the same. Maybe you spotted that was the repeated phrase in verses 3 and 4. So verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That phrase comes twice again in verse 4. And by confidence in the flesh, Paul simply means confidence in myself to be acceptable to God. I just think uh, flesh is self written backwards with an extra H. So when we read flesh, when we read flesh, just think self. 
And so these false teachers insisted on circumcision to be acceptable to God. But Paul wants us to know that the flesh, our own efforts, count for nothing. And so in verse 4, Paul says, well, if you want to play that self-confidence game, don't bother, I'll play you off the park. And then he reels off his religious CV or his uh, UCAS personal statement, depending on how old you are. At first comes his religious pedigree. So verse 5, he's circumcised on the eighth day, exactly the right day to be circumcised according to the Old Testament law. He's of the people of Israel. He's a member of God's chosen nation. Of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, one of the two tribes that remained loyal to King David. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, thinking of his parents, to use a a Harry Potter term. He's a Hebrew pureblood, not a Gentile muggle. Paul's from good stock. And he also has an impeccable religious performance. Uh, Verse 6, as to the law of Pharisee. Pharisees, the the gold standard law keepers, uh, even making up rules to make sure they don't break God's law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Not that he had never sinned, uh, but his life had been exemplary in following God's law as he interpreted it. In a game of religious top trumps, Paul is the best card in the pack. He is top dog. He's top of the league without any rivals. But the hammer blow comes in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's like Paul is doing some accounting on an Excel spreadsheet. I don't know if that excites you or not. He's putting all of verse 5 and 6 in the profit column. And when he uh, looks down at the total, he's got huge sums of credit, or so he thinks. Uh, But now, verse 7, all of that has been transferred across, copied and pasted, onto the loss column. Everything he'd spent his life accumulating, all those spiritual brownie points, all of his, his pedigree, his performance, he now looks back on as loss. Not just negative, but damaging. If you're here looking in on the Christian faith, perhaps you can begin to see how completely opposite to society's way of thinking this is. Uh, There are millions of people whose confidence before God is put in themselves. Uh, Maybe their pedigree. I'm from a Christian home. I'm uh, from a Christian nation, perhaps. Or confidence put in our performance. I'm a decent person. I give to charity. I try and do good and and do those things in my life. I go to church, even the right church. I was baptised. Lots of people have this uh, confidence in the flesh attitude when it comes to being accepted by God. But ultimately, it's a misplaced confidence. It's actually a damaging confidence. Because it counts for nothing in our standing before God. Well, as we said earlier, it's wonderful that Camille has been baptised today. She has the wonderful uh, privilege of having Maxime and Rosalie as her parents uh, being brought to church from the womb. But the Bible is clear, as Maxime and Rosalie are, that even though baptism and having Christian parents and coming to church are great privileges, they cannot make us right with God on their own. 
Uh, last week I saw a funny video of a, a football fan trying to beat the queues at a tube station by running up the down escalator. He looked a bit uh, worse for wear, um, and uh, everyone's cheering him on. But every time he gets near the top, he falls and goes back down again, and everyone laughs. Um, he probably hurt himself, but like I said, it was a funny video. Um, and no matter how hard he tried, he just couldn't reach the top. Well, the Bible is clear for us that no matter how hard we might try, we cannot reach the top of the escalator when it comes to God. We don't even get close. And so, in fact, Paul is warning us against putting confidence in the flesh, in self, in our religious pedigree and performance to be acceptable to God. But there's more to it. Because he's also warning us about putting our confidence in those things in order to be acceptable to others. And Galatians is another letter that Paul wrote. He, he writes about these false teachers there as well, who seem to dog his steps wherever he goes. I've put a verse on that handout uh, from Galatians, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. These teachers are pushing circumcision in order to avoid suffering. Well, just a reminder of uh, the histor- historical context. Uh, Philippi had been granted a status of a, a Roman colony. It's proud of its links with Rome, with all the privilege that flowed from it. And at this time, the Jewish faith was a, a legally accepted and registered religion in Rome. And Christianity was still seen as a kind of outlying sect of Judaism, seeking to depart from the mainstream. And it seems as though these Jewish Christians were wanting to combine Christianity with Jewish practices in order to still shelter under this protective arm that Judaism enjoyed, wanting to maintain a socially respectable religion rather than being seen as an outlying sect, uh, being part of the mainstream in order to avoid the suffering that comes. Now, it's probably unlikely that we're going to face a temptation to adopt Jewish practices in order for us to be acceptable to others. But there is still that underlying temptation, if we'd call ourselves a follower of Jesus, to make our faith more socially acceptable in order to avoid suffering for Jesus. Just think, on a, on a personal level, life would be a lot easier if we were less insistent that our good works get us nowhere with God would be acceptable to others if we said actually there are more than one way to God and our works do count actually insisting that our pedigree and performance are worthless doesn't win us any friends and may well invite conflict oh you're part of that church are you I wonder if anyone said that to any of us before And then it comes this pressure on a a national church level. So instead of um, national church denominations pushing circumcision in order to be socially acceptable, it's perhaps instead downplaying sin or the nature of of God's punishment on sin. Saying there are many ways to God or pushing the world's view on contentious issues like gender and sexuality. And when that happens, churches face a, a choice 
except that form of Christianity uh, sheltering somewhat under the protective arm that it offers have more respectability in the eyes of the world or stick with Jesus and the Bible's clear teaching and suffer scorn in the denomination and world's eyes. That is the pressure the church in Philippi face and it's the pressure that churches face today up and down the country adapting a form of Christianity that is more acceptable to others all in order to avoid suffering. And so how do Christians and churches withstand this pressure and strive side by side in the gospel with the suffering that it brings? Well, by rejoicing in Christ and by valuing Jesus more than anything. And that's Paul's next point. Uh, Religious pedigree and performance are worth nothing, but personally knowing Jesus is worth everything. The only thing left in Paul's uh, profit column on his his Excel spreadsheet is Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Knowing Jesus moved everything from the profit column to the loss column. And this isn't just knowing things about Jesus. Notice the word my. Knowing Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, my Lord. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said this. The life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is our saviour, it's quite another to say he is my saviour and my Lord. For Paul, personally knowing Jesus as his Lord changed everything. And he doesn't go for caveats, does he? And so verse 8, I count everything as loss for the sake. Uh, I've suffered loss, uh, the loss of all things and count them as rubbish they're worthless they're like monopoly money everything this world offers uh, status, privilege, reputation stuff, success, career money are like the contents of your black bin Paul um, thinks of his past performance and pedigree as rubbish. And so then, in the words of REM, this is Paul losing his religion, but gaining Christ. And the reason that Jesus is worth so much more than anything else is in Paul's repeated use of R&R. Not rest and relaxation, but righteousness and resurrection. Personally, knowing Jesus is worth everything because in him we have righteousness from God. Now look down with, uh, at verse 9 with me. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The word righteousness here just uh, means to be declared innocent to be in the right with God. And Paul says three things about this righteousness in verse 9. It's not achieved by us keeping the law. That is why we put no confidence in the flesh, in ourselves, because 
There's no way we can achieve it on our own. We, can no, we can't achieve our own righteousness. No way we can get to the top of the escalator. But instead, it comes through faith in Christ. Or more literally, literally through the faithfulness of Christ. It's all down to his perfect obedience, even to death, that we saw in chapter 2. And we receive it by faith. A righteousness is a free gift to us. Like a Christmas present that you're all buying at the moment. Now, not once have my children tried to pay me for a present. It just doesn't work like that. They just receive it. And that is what faith is. Receiving something without trying to pay for it. And so here then is the great news at the heart of the Christian faith. That on the cross, uh, Jesus took God's punishment for our sin. And when we put our trust in Jesus' death on the cross, I'm given Christ's perfect record. His sinless record as a gift. So that when God looks at me, he sees Christ. Well, the right response to that is to rejoice Uh, That's how Paul starts in verse 1. This is the truth that the Philippians need to keep hearing. It's the same truth that we need to keep hearing. Uh, We can know Jesus personally and be declared perfect uh, by God because of Jesus' death in our place. That's what Camille will grow up hearing again and again. And when we remind ourselves or hear that truth over and over again each time, it should cause us to rejoice in the Lord even when suffering comes because of it. Personally, knowing Jesus is worth everything because in Jesus we have righteousness from God. But Paul's not finished yet because Jesus is worth everything also because in him we have resurrection power in suffering. Verse 10 again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, or literally partnering with him, in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Personally knowing Jesus and receiving righteousness from him will mean experiencing his resurrection power. And that for Paul is a brilliant thing. Because it will mean he'll have the power to live like Jesus in his suffering. Here Paul weaves in these chapters, uh, themes from chapter 2. For Jesus, the order was suffering, then resurrection. But notice in verse 10 it's been swapped. At first resurrection, then suffering. For these Christians in Philippi who are tempted to keep a low profile uh, or adopt a more respectable form of religion in the face of opposition. Well, Paul encourages them and us that Jesus' resurrection power is made available now. Resurrection power to strengthen, to serve and to suffer together. And as Paul lives this way, at suffering and serving others, he is confident that death won't be the end. That's what he means at the end of verse 11. Paul looks forward uh, to a day when he will be with Jesus forever, not because of his own performance, but because of the performance of Jesus and Jesus' righteousness given to him. Well then, so uh, what of us? 
Well, the choice in Philippians 3, 1 to 11 is the choice of valuing respectable religion that is ultimately worthless or valuing Christ who is worth everything. And when we see the surpassing worth of person knowing Jesus, we'll be willing to accept the reproach of the world and not trade righteousness for respectability. To live this way, we need help. In fact, we need resurrection power. A resurrection power to partner together, serving like Timothy, at suffering like Epaphroditus. Perhaps that looks like willing to cross the pain line, inviting a friend to a carol service or the wreath-making, or offering to uh, read the Bible with a friend and not ducking out when the gospel becomes controversial, at taking the hit of our respectability and status amongst friends, family and colleagues. As I close then, in 2014, a US metal dealer bought a golden egg for £8,000 at a a bric-a-brac sale, a car boot sale, um, thinking he could melt it down into gold. But after reading a newspaper article, he realised it was a rare Fabergé egg made for Russian royalty and was actually worth £20 million. Uh, Once he saw the true value, he didn't trade it for some melted gold. Well, Paul wants us to see the true value of personally knowing Jesus so that we wouldn't trade him for anything else in the world because everything is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of personally knowing Jesus, even a £20 million Fabergé egg. And through the hardship, uh, like Paul, we can look to the certain resurrection from the dead and a great and glorious everlasting future with Jesus to come.